Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that gives you a roadmap of choices to make towards more fulfilling self-expression. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Ali and Beth Khalifa are self-starters from way back. The two partners have spent over 15 years as consulting and independent designers running Gamil Design and have never shied from a challenge in bypassing regular channels to make and sell their own stuff. We talked first in 2005 when I interviewed them for the late lamented ID magazine of industrial design about their then unique product, the tea stick, a stainless steel tea infuser that's now widely copied. Their latest beverage related endeavor is the Impress Coffee Brewer, crowdfunded last year and shipping out shortly and on time. They have a new idea about shoes we'll talk about too. But the product design and production is only one facet of the couple's interest. They live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and have fostered several different collaborative and artistic communities that allow people working together to rise all boats at once. This includes the Design Box Co-working Collective and SparkCon, an annual event which integrates art, design, technology, business, and inclusivity. We have so much to talk about. Welcome to the podcast, Beth and Ali. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be talking to you again. It's uh, it's fun. It's uh, it's only been eight years, and uh, I remember when I saw I, I saw the same reaction when I saw the tea stick when you were first making this. It's I think this might be a great place to start, kind of in the almost in the middle of your your career span, where I saw this thing and I thought, God, this is has no one written about this? And I checked, and you know, at the time people did all at once, I think, but it seems self evident the moment I saw it, like a lot of good design. You had a great story about that because you had been kicking that around for a few years before you started producing it in 2005, weren't you? Yeah, sure enough. Um, and it came across just because of a local coffee shop called the Third Place Coffee House. And I had just read The Great Good Place, which was talking about how there was the need for third places. And so while, you know, while uh, Ty and Rich, the, the two proprietors, were still shoveling and and mucking about in the renovation, I walked in. I was like, "Is this from that that book?" And uh, they both just gleamed that I knew even what you know that was about. And um, we were fast friends from then on. So, um, shortly thereafter, um, they talked with me about the need to design a teapot, and we asked them why a teapot. And they had defined the problem so well that the tea stick just naturally came out of the problem statement. And I remember you introduced me to this great thing back then, which was the problem of American manufacture. Because if if I recall the story right, and you can correct me on this, it, you didn't, you know, in 2005 say, hey, we have an idea, we found a product, a place to make the product, and boom. How long before you went into production had you designed uh, the tea stick? Um you know, it was an evolving design. Mm. It probably started in, you know, 99 or 2000. 2001 is when we finally, you know, felt satisfied to do something with it and made um, our first little batch, which I welded most of those all by, you know, by myself, which um, we, we got a few returns from those. <laughs> <laughs> but um, after, you know, making those locally here, then we tried to see how we could scale up. And what I mean here, I mean within, within Wake County in North Carolina, um, in the Raleigh area. Um, but at, when we tried to scale up, that's when we had a real struggle finding a suitable manufacturer. I'm curious if that's changed since then, because you've gone through other product designs, and let's and we'll talk in a, a few minutes about the later ones. But if I, I again, I'm trying to remember back for our 2005 conversation that it was hard to find people who worked with tubular steel and could work to the specification you you wanted. There were only a few companies in the United States maybe who uh, who could work with it and. I recall that it was difficult to find to pin anyone down to actually talk about making this specific um, inter a combination of components that had to click together just right to work in manufacture. Well, you know, it was surprising. I mean, you know, I, I do a lot of manufacturing engineering. And so, you know, in terms of like defining the skill set, we were able to get down to 74 companies in the United States that seemed to meet all the requirements about, you know, working with stainless steel and um, working with stainless steel tubing and cutting it and, you know, doing rolling and things like that. So we, th we felt like we were able to find, you know, a bracketed set of group that could do that in the United States. But what we were so surprised about was that um, out of the 74 that we identified, we kept getting faxes. I mean, this is back in the day of the faxes. We would get faxes um, back saying no bid. And wow. I had never seen that before. And it was one after the other after the other. And probably uh, most of these manufacturers realize, for one, as a consumer product, not an industrial product. So that already means that there's a different quality of finish that's going to be expected. But also knowing a consumer product that there's, you know, the price is going to be a little bit tighter. So in the end, I think we only got three or four people who 
um, actually did bid on it, and two of them were military contractors, and I think the cost was something like $45, and we were trying to, you know, at the time, retail it for $30, <laughs> and um, and the other one ended up being someone who was just um, maybe uh, not really legit. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. Well, and I, if I can describe to listeners, I'll have a picture of this in the show notes or a link to the product because uh, you can still purchase it. But it's a perforated steel that's been rolled and connected uh, that runs around a kind of container, which is a scoop. And it also becomes the infuser when you slide the steel down. And you've got a rounded handle at the bottom and a piece that's been welded at the other end to sort of act as part of the scoop. It's complicated, but you were surprised, I know, at the time that nobody seemed to be able to want to or or produce, not even produce it affordably, but that you got no response to say, hey, we'll take a look at this, we'll try it. It was like, no, we just can't do this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the problem I have with most of my own designs <laughs> or other designers, which is you design something that looks simple, but doesn't mean it actually is simple to make. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was just two cuts into a stainless steel tube and a bending operation and, a, you know, roll forming of perforated. I mean, there really wasn't that much to it. And one weld, one press fit. Not a whole lot to it, but the problem is if you want to use high-grade stainless steel, it's really tough. And tough materials don't want to be cut cleanly, and so you end up spending all this time deburring and de-edging and making stuff so it's not sharp and it cuts somebody. And that's what becomes the real problem is making that kind of a material, which is very industrial, but then like bring it to the consumer market. That's the thing. It's one of those things in design. Is like it's, it's a real art to manufacturing engineering, which is to understand, like, okay, here's the design intent. Here's what we want to do of something that looks simple, but then... How do you actually make it simply um, can be very, very different things. I mean, I think the, the iPhone is a perfect example of something that looks simple but is unbelievably complicated to make. And I think in the end, you had to take this to China to find a manufacturer who would take it on. Partly it was labor was part of it, but also it seemed to me they're willing to simply to, to say, yeah, there's all these steps you described in the deburring, but they're used to making really complicated multi-step processes because labor was, uh, at that time at least, was a differential um, to the United States at such a huge level that you could afford to have all these people deburring and doing all these operations? Well, actually, you know, um, it was interesting because I was working um, at the time pretty tightly with an inline skate manufacturer in Taiwan. And Roger um, decided, you know, it brought me out to his tea farm. He actually has a tea farm in the mountains of Taiwan, mm. right in the Tiger's Paw. So it's like in this, these five mountains that come around and the energy is so good. They actually had Buddhist monks, you know, knocking on his door to meditate in his actual place i mean just unbelievably beautiful it's just to, to see an oolong tea farm you know they only pick two or three leaves at a time and so to be there in a meditation space and to you know start you know catching up with roger about what we were doing and he had just bought a bicycle factory was just getting into bicycle manufacturing which cuts stainless steel tubing huh. <laughs> and here we are sitting on a tea farm <laughs> talking about my tea stick and so it was really out of that partnership and that friendship that this happened. In fact, what ha I, I even bartered the first run of production that came from Roger's factory. I designed three bicycles for our first shipment. Um, you know, he had, he had there's like three kid bikes that he wanted to make. And so we just did a little barter arrangement, and that's how it came about. But the real breakthrough and the thing that was very interesting is that it really wasn't about cheap labor. It was actually about a highly innovative manufacturing process, hmm. and um, I guess I probably shouldn't say exactly what it is, but it's a process <laughs> that uh, you would never think to use in manufacturing, and um, it was a breakthrough of using a tool the opposite way than you would normally use it that allowed this thing to be made cleanly, easily, without much deburring, and very low labor. Oh, that's fascinating. So it was actually it was a technological and sort of a hardware breakthrough but was that now without getting into those details though was that were the was the manufacturer thinking uh in an innovative way because they needed to figure out how to make their own stuff at a less costly level or was this a happy accident um i think it's just when you are in a manufacturing culture you see things differently you you see tools right if 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 you walk into someone's wood shop and there's a thousand tools around them and you need to do something difficult you have so much to draw from than if you're staring at a blank piece of paper trying to wonder how to make it. And I think that's really what's happening in Asia. And I think there's a real disconnect that people don't understand that the manufacturing that's happening in Asia, I think, was, you know, by and large started because of cheap labor. But that's not why Asia has an advantage now. The advantage they have really is a cultural manufacturing um, advantage that they 
will use things differently. Once you have a hammer, you might use it a hundred different ways than the way it was designed for. And when you have all those tools at your disposal, you're much more likely to be creative and do interesting things. And I, th- and I think that's something that um, I always try to seek out in a partner is who's really going to be a creative manufacturer. And when, those are real rare gems to find. But when you find them, when you're in the middle of a place that has so much funding and so much machinery and so much other resources you know, within a snap of a finger, then you really can do some miraculous products. And this was a, the T-Stick was a bit of a, a leap for you folks at the time, if I recall too, that you, this was, was this the first product you'd market on any scale that uh, you developed and, and produced yourself? Yeah, it really was. I mean, we in fact wrote the whole thing off as professional development. We never expected to make $1 out of it, but, you know, working with a lot of the big sports brands and other brands and um, across the world, really, as a, as consultants, we kept inventing things and designing things and branding things for people and telling them how to launch it. But who are we? We never launched anything ourselves. And can I bring and, in? So this is uh, so I know that your background is industrial design uh, and um, and product design. You come from that world, Beth. I know that your background is more on the. I, I was trained as a graphic designer. I'm contractually obliged in every podcast to mention <laughs> that. By the way, I was trained as a graphic designer. I know you come from the graphic design and branding aspect. So how where do you fit in in terms of? Uh, so you have a product that's innovative. You figure out how to make it. How do you get this thing in 2005? How do you get this thing to market when the tools that are available? I mean, by today's standard, they seem it's only seven years ago, eight years ago. It seems very primitive. What do you do to take this into people's consciousness? Yeah, it's it's funny to remember back to um, to how we started the T stick because it is so different from how we are doing things today, for a number of reasons. One, because we didn't know what we were doing in 2005, and we have learned a lot since then. But for another, as you mentioned, the tools have all advanced a lot for small brands and inventors to bring things to market themselves. But when we brought the T-Stick to market, what we did, um, I mean, we created all the branding and the graphic design piece of it and the website and e-commerce and all of that was in place. Um, this was kind of, I would say, in more the, more the beginning boom years of when blog posts could really make something happen. Now we all use commercial blogs as a marketing tool fairly commonly, but we didn't really know much about that, or at least I didn't back in 2005. And we found that we put information out there and we did a lot of, of what we called press releases, but they were really much more personal than that because they were emails from us to bloggers and found that we got a lot of excitement and a lot of write-ups about the T-Stick and that just essentially exploded for us. And so we were we went from zero to 60, you know, and, and just, um, <laughs> just suddenly had a, a, a product that people wanted, that people were ordering as fast as we could fulfill it or even faster than we could fulfill it. And this, this experiment that we were doing just so that we could have the experience to offer to our consulting clients suddenly became a business of its own. That is so fascinating, that transition. And again, it's so, it's so strange. I've done so many podcasts with people who have, say, a 10 or 15 year history in doing uh, products or uh, web comics or music, whatever it is. And we look back and it's like, what, what did we have? You know, it was blogs. It was hard to collect credit cards. We could use PayPal, but uh, now there's so many options. So maybe we can fast forward now because we look at 2012 when you launched something that was in many ways, a, you know, a terrific parallel. The Impressed Coffee Brewer has a lot of kinds of elements in common with the tea stick, including that obviousness once you see it. You know, before you see it, you couldn't imagine it as most people aren't product people. That's not, you know, average citizens. We look at things, we know, I don't know how to make this better. You see it like, oh, of course, that is an approach one could take. And now I know by looking at it exactly how it will work. So clearly you had to start, you had to start on a different basis. You had all these different tools. When you planned the impressed coffee brewer, what did you look at? I mean, you chose Kickstarter in the end, but what did you look at in terms of how you would approach building that versus, you know, say eight years ago when this was new? Well, I think the T-Stick, we pretty much did everything wrong. <laughs> you know, like we really fell in love with the name T-Stick, but we didn't think to trademark it. We, you know, we 
we designed this thing that became, you know, pretty interesting and innovative in a way and um, didn't think to patent it. And so all these things that, you know, we never really tried to protect it because we were just doing it for professional development. We never thought of it as a business. And when we did the impress, we decided that, you know, we would learn from this and say that there's a potential for business here. So if there is a potential, let's take a few steps at least to protect ourselves. I mean, I don't really subscribe to trying to overprotect yourself and, and, and do things like that. Because the more you try to do that, then the more you slow things down. So there's, like, there's some kind of harmony or some kind of balance between protecting yourself enough that you're not just outright ripped off so that everyone has a T-stick in their line <laughs> or whatever. Right. But also moving quickly enough that you're actually making things happen and you're not going to let an idea just go fallow. So that was one of the things is like, let's, let's do the T-stick right. And, and part of that was because people were asking us to do a T-stick for coffee. Mm-hmm. That's really where the impress comes from. Oh, that's funny. Right. And it's a logical extension because people, I mean, I've still got my, just by the way, the first batch was really good because I got an early, I forget if you, I'm sure I, I bought some, maybe you sent me a review unit, but I was giving them away uh, years ago too. I got a year, you know, because no one had right. one and I've got one that's eight years old. It's got a little stain on the stainless steel. We run it through the dishwasher. <laughs> it still works perfectly. Hasn't fallen apart. It's working great. So I, you know, I have that same, like, all right, I know, I know there's some reliability to the products, the way you figured out how to design them. And it seems like a logical leap you've got all these people out there however many hundreds of thousands with a tea stick and they're like you know maybe this would be good for coffee too so you got a lot of email like that yeah we got a lot of fans you know it's been (laughs) it's been wonderful thing and that was you know there's so many unexpected learnings from it but one of them was how you can all of a sudden connect a whole new community and you know First of all, when I designed the tea stick, I knew very little about tea. I mean, I knew about Chinese tea service, which I'm a big fan of, and I love oolong teas from Taiwan. I mean, that's probably my favorite tea of all, which, um, you know, was one way of looking at tea. But this is really an American product or a Western product where we're going to have individual tea as opposed to group tea. And I ended up learning about all this stuff, things that I never thought to that would come come along except when you launch your own brand. When you're doing consulting, you don't really get connected as much to like real users who want to sit down with you for 30 minutes and tell you about what's good or bad or whatever about your product. And so that just grew a whole community. And that, as a result, ends up bringing you lots of ideas. I mean, really cool connections, people who are trying to do similar things and want to connect to you one way or the other, or people who are users and have different product ideas. But it opens your mind. And and that's what really um, the impress comes from. It's, it's definitely a child of the T-Stick. Let's take a break to talk about one of our sponsors. It's been so long since I've had to type my email address, my street address, my phone number, and other recurring bits of text in full that I scarcely remember them at times. I'm a longtime user of Text Expander, a utility for Mac OS X and iOS that lets you substitute a few keystrokes for strings of text. It's faster than typing, and it saves wear and tear on your fingers. Text Expander can be set to correct typos automatically, and you can update and add to the list of words it fixes as you type. I use Text Expander constantly to fill in forms and sign emails and to drop in the current date and time in notes I take of interviews. The latest version for the Mac also lets you create form letters with multiple choice pop-up menus for quicker responses to email questions. In iOS, Text Expander works with 140 apps, including Day One, IA Writer, Byword, OmniFocus, and Things. There's a list of compatible apps on Smile's site. Find out more about Text Expander and Smile's other products at smilesoftware.com slash ND. That's ND like new disruptors. Now back to the program. And so when you came to the idea of, okay, you've got this idea, you're doing all the things that you feel that you, you didn't do the first time around. So now you're you know, patenting and, and uh, name choosing and all the rest of it. So there's lots of different ways to get funding. You clearly, folks, have been successful in what you do. You've got a consulting business. Some people choose to self-fund. Some people go out for investors. Some people go to crowdfunding. Now, how do you pick among, or, you know, or even for crying out loud, a bank loan? Those are even possible back you know, a couple years ago, a few years <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah, I remember so, those days. That's crazy. I know. For small businesses, maybe less so, but they're still out there, you know. So, or even friends and family funding, all that. So you had, you know, you're in a probably not a unique, but a very nice position where you had probably almost every funding choice to, to, uh, look at. How did you come to choose crowdfunding, um, as opposed to any of these other methods? Well, we, we looked at a lot of different methods. And first of all, one of the things we learned with the T stick, was that when we talked to our audience, 
and when they talked to us, they were very excited about the fact that they were talking to the real people behind the tea sticks. They weren't talking to a business. They were talking to a person. They weren't talking to a brand. They were talking to the person who had the idea. So we knew that that was a very valuable part of what we were offering, and we didn't want to lose that. At the same time, we knew that the way we did it with the tea stick, which was starting from zero and just seeing how far we could go with our own time and our own money, we run into blocks, time blocks, cash flow blocks, that sort of stuff that keeps things a little slower than we would want them to go. So we wanted to have a little bit more cash up front to to really launch the impress at a larger scale than we launched the tea stick. So we looked at, we did talk about investors, um, but we looked a lot at crowdfunding and I would say that one of the main reasons that we looked very seriously at crowdfunding in the beginning was for the same reason we started the T-Stick, which is a lot of our clients are interested in crowdfunding. We had never done it and had not really experienced it, and we felt that we needed to investigate it further in order to speak knowledgeably about it. Oh, that's great! Because so you're gonna so this is a, an issue both in your consulting business. Now this is this is unique among people I've talked to is that most of the folks who are designers maybe do products for other people, but they don't consult. They're product makers, and so in this case, you've got people asking you or who you want to bring this knowledge to of what it's like to build, manage, and fulfill a whole campaign. Right? Yeah, we have lots of lots of uh, product inventor folks who we're working with on a consulting basis. They want to take a product to market. And a lot of those people could benefit from from a crowdfunding approach or a, a smaller uh, – I consider crowdfunding to be a potentially smaller approach than an investor approach because you're not giving up any part of your company. You don't have to go as big as fast. And it lets you, it lets you have a different pace. And so – we we want to offer that idea to a lot of our clients, but we couldn't get further than just saying, "Hey, have you looked at crowdfunding?" <laughs> unless we um, unless we experienced it ourselves. Oh, uh, so you're doing the eat your own dog food thing, so that you could you could and then and then well, right. So the danger would be, what if this didn't take off? But it seemed to me uh, in the end, I'll you know they'll have a link in the show notes to the campaign. But you were looking for fifty thousand dollars raised, one hundred thirty one thousand, and almost twenty five hundred people backed the project. So very successful, I think. Um, you know, uh, among crowdfunding, uh, you know, certainly in like eightieth, ninetieth percentile of what goes on there. But but also, I would think. You knew you had dedicated fans. You knew you had an audience of people. And you had people you could tell about this, didn't you? I mean, I keep coming back to this. People, crowdfunding works when you've done something. I mean, it works best, I should say. Not always, but it works best when people say, I like that thing you did. Would you do another thing like it and tell me about it so I know I can support it? Did it come about from, I mean, did the success partly come from having an audience you'd already spoken to and could reach? Yes, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, there were a lot of folks who, who knew us as the T-Stick people, and we tried to make sure that when we did the Kickstarter campaign uh, that we did mention that. But regardless, I mean, we have, a, we have a pretty large community from a lot of the other things that we're doing from uh, creative community building sorts of things and press and our clients and et cetera, et cetera. So we made very sure that we had everything in line so that we could tell everyone immediately as soon as the Kickstarter campaign started. So it was not a trickle of information as the campaign progressed. We blasted it very intentionally from day one. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. You have to have a a market already defined with people that you already know um, to get the whole ball rolling. Because if the ball isn't really snowballing and pretty big by day three of a campaign, you're not going to make it to the end. That's what I keep hearing too, is that that first, well, three days is useful. And I've heard like the first week, you can sort of tell what the final total will be more or less not, I mean, not 100% accurately, but with a pretty high degree of accuracy within a week, what's going to happen? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, you know, and Kickstarter, for instance, will, you know, give you the, the diagnostics and show you the, the typical tracking chart. And there's the big trough in the middle. You get 
excitement at the at the beginning and excitement at the end and <laughs> not much in the middle. So they usually say, you know, if it's a 30-day campaign or 60-day campaign, it's probably not going to affect your numbers. It's just a wider trough. Um, so I think we were able to defeat some of that. I don't think our trough was quite as deep. It seemed like the excitement kept building. Um, but to, to Beth's point, I think there was certainly our own crew. I mean, we've been working for a while, and so, you know, we know a few folks, and, and we're just so thankful how many people are supportive but what we're, you know, maybe more surprised by that if you actually look at who funded um, the program, 55% were um, already Kickstarter people. Oh, interesting. I'm hearing that more and more. Kickstarter is talking about that they started to see, even when the Double Fine uh, video game fundraising happened, they said, let's look at what happens afterwards. And a lot of the people who came in as first-time Kickstarter contributors to that campaign, which raised, I think, over $2 million, they said those people went on, and a lot of them then became regular Kickstarter uh, contributors. And we're starting to see that kind of um, something that didn't exist in the first couple of years. There weren't enough Kickstarter backers of any kind. Now they're discovering through the site, maybe that's how they find you? Yeah, I, yes. Yeah. We noticed that in the beginning of our campaign, in those first few days and first week, probably, I don't know, 70% or more of the backers were people that we were somehow connected to, either directly or indirectly. But as the campaign progressed, the percentage changed. So by the end of the campaign, the percentage of people that we knew was on the low end, like 30% of the total maybe, and 70% of the total were people who found us directly from Kickstarter that had no connection to us whatsoever. And that happened because of a number of things, or this is my interpretation. Um, one of them is because of the, the, the snowball effect I was talking about in the beginning, is it got a really good start. And so that gave it a little bit of presence on Kickstarter. And then we proceeded throughout the campaign to try to get media mentions and that kind of thing. So those, those media mentions ended up bringing new people to the site. And it just grew very dynamically that way and organically that way. And we were just really surprised at the end that all of these people who who didn't know who we were or had never seen anything that we had done were really excited about the product. That's well, something I keep hearing too is that people can't anticipate when they start their campaign quite how much the effect will go beyond that first degree of, of people they know or their customers or friends and family and that the ones that are most successful Something's appealing to other people once they hear about it from a friend or a friend of a friend. And you had that good round and then multiple rounds since the T-Stick of publicity about a product that delivered and then additional products that delivered. And um, so it seems like there's a goodwill factor that leads to this as well as people weren't burned by you. You've done consistent things over time. And then plus, if people look in, they say, what, you know, who are these folks? These are designers. What have they done? Okay, oh, they got this track record. Oh, you know, wow, they've done all these other things. And then I think there's also that sense of community. There's that issue of, all the different things you're involved with that are trying to, as I said in the introduction, you're trying to lift all boats. You're not in this in a, you know, you don't give off the image of people really insular and focused on the money aspect or, you know, fulfilling your own dreams. And so I think the more people follow links and explore, it seems like they'd say like, hey, these are really, I am dealing with the designers you talked about earlier. These are people I want to support. So discovery was rewarded by people finding out more and more about your background. Yeah, well, we were... We were humbled by that, and we were also really excited by Kickstarter and other crowdfunding campaigns for that community aspect of it. Because when we when we started researching it before we knew we were going to do this, we, of course, knew it was a community, but we had not been a part of that community before, and now we are. And it really is a huge community. We get wonderful and lots of feedback about our campaign, about our message, about our product, about our choices, about our rewards, about our timeline, everything. So it's it's a focus group of people who seem to honestly care about whether we're successful. And that's just really fascinating and rewarding to be a part of a group like that. So, I mean, we're, we're creative community lovers. So to have 
kind of stumbled into this without the realization beforehand that, that this is where we were going to end up as being a part of a, a new creative community. Um, we just love that result. That's uh, such a wonderful thing to hear too. It seems like um, part of the big change is that, is that you could go, there's lots of different ways to get money, as we said, but this way you're getting money and you're getting love. You're getting morale support, moral support. You're getting morale building during the project. You're getting feedback. And then these people become your best salespeople in the nicest, softest possible way is they're telling their friends during the campaign. Then they get one and they, I know I feel this way about stuff that I've been a Kickstarter contributor to. I get the thing. And then I talk about it all the time. Like I, you know, I, I bought one of these when it came out and, you know, sometimes it's, I put in a hundred dollars and I got a signed print from the person who created it. And sometimes it's, I bought it at a discount off what the retail price would be. But that feeling of participation is the same. Like, I think I helped make this happen, even though it went over the target goal. It's like, I helped these people make a thing that I love. And now I'm going to go out there and tell everybody else about it. So you're just shy of that stage. Cause I should point out the other interesting thing, of course, is that you planned this, you knew how to actually deliver this on time and things seem to have gone your way, right? You're going to deliver this. The target date was April, 2013 for shipping. You're pretty close to that mark, aren't we you? We might ship the first ones today. Uh, oh my gosh. And it's, we're, I should say we're recording this in late March right now. So that's, it's going to air in a couple of weeks, but yeah, that's, well, congratulations. I, this is the big thing I hear over and over is especially you, you really are not first time. You're not first time product makers and uh, of a level of scale. That's at this point. I had this great conversation with the folks at CW and T, Wei Wang and, uh, and Taylor Levy about their pen type A where they weren't naive and they've made a lot of products for other people. And this is a podcast just a few weeks ago. Their Kickstarter was a hundred times oversubscribed. They were raising $2,500 and they got 250 grand. And every step of the way, the scale issues hit them because they hadn't built stuff themselves to scale. You guys have built things at scale, have shipped at scale over and over again. So it's almost like when I had my second or my first child, I had the best compliment paid to me by a, a fellow I know with two kids. He said, you act like you have like this is your second child. Like you're not freaked out. I'm like I listen to you. I listen to all the advice everyone had, and I'm trying not to be freaked out. This is like the same thing. This may be your first Kickstarter campaign, but you act like you've done a dozen. And this is what people usually see after several attempts. You went in this with such eyes open and such planning that your customers, your patrons, and your customers seem like they're going to be very happy to get this on time. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's we're fortunate. I mean, you know, to be on two sides of, of the story that, you know, I can work on the product stuff and, and do a lot of production stuff. And then Beth can sort of temper my expectations. <laughs> vice versa. <That's> <laughs> and so I, I think uh, in terms of both sides, we've been able to give our, give each other feedback, but also kind of speak from like a experience side of, okay, well, this is probably how marketing is going to work for this thing, or this is probably how production is going to go down and be, um, sounding close for both of each other. So I think that's been a real benefit and for, you know, for our relationship. And I think that's been a fantastic thing. And there's been enough people asking us about what we've done um, that um, we're all encouraging Beth to complete a book on this. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Just because, I mean, at a certain point when people ask you the same questions over and over, you want to be able to give them a complete answer. It's just hard to give them a complete answer a hundred times in a row. So this could be maybe something that we can maybe even crowdfund again, just the book itself about, you know, at least our experiences. And in in a lot of ways, this is another part of our, you know, our continuing evolution. Beth and I have tried to figure out why we keep doing so many different kinds of things that most business people never, ever would attempt. And I think it's just because we are addicted to that inventive culture or creative community, however you want to look at it. And we've been looking at all these different aspects of it. And I mean, crowdfunding it's another aspect of the creative community. It's it's like going to a money party with your friends. It's not like going to a bank. And it, it's a completely different experience that seems to resonate with the other aspects of what most of our community are already doing. And it was finally it was a more of a hey, finally this is here because this has been part of the, you know, the thing that has really stunk about everything that we've been doing is that you have to go to the bank and ask for a line of credit and do all this other stuff and prove everything and put your house on the line. And when you're, you know, you're pretty sure that you have already pre-sold quite a bit, but the bank's not going to buy that. The bank's never going to really resonate with that. And so really the crowd speaks louder than any institution like that. And why use an, an old institution 
to help new ideas. Um, I think those are good for the older or more established ideas, but the new ideas, they need, you know, new forms of support. And um, it's been a, f- a fabulous experience. And to me, it's the same thing, like maybe, as you mentioned, as the as some of our product design, I think the crowdfunding um, model itself is a design of, oh my God, you know, thank God, why wasn't this here all the time? <laughs> yeah, and people get that joy. I, I probably repeat myself in every podcast about this. They get the joy of saying, um, you know, this thing that didn't exist, I'm helping to pull this thing into existence as being a contributor to it. But I realize also as a creator, you get to say, is anybody interested in this? We have this idea. We think it's great. We've been working on it for a while. We're going to put it out there and see if people, you know, kick our baby or, or cuddle it. And in this case, they, you know, people picked it up and held it close. Yeah, and I tell you what, I mean, I was the person, probably the biggest naysayer in the entire team, about I don't know, I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> you know, um, I, I can't tell you I was confident at all that this would happen. I was confident in the product, but not necessarily in how the whole thing goes down, or if people would understand it, or if people would really resonate with it. Well, it was, it was price too. Obviously, is you know, I think in the in the Kickstarter, it was forty dollars. Was that the price for the pre-release right. version? That's what got it for you. What's it going to retail for? Do you think? Um, it will retail for forty dollars. So. Oh, that's great. Okay, so that's I mean, so people feel like so they're so they you know the, the senses too when you buy into something like this sometimes people make a big deal about we're going to sell this thing for $225 at retail and we're going to sell it in the Kickstarter for 150 because there's no middleman or whatever in in this case I mean the people are buying so many co- coffee paraphernalia things now too and the AeroPress made a big push obviously as a kind of plastic device I have one I know a million people have that but there's a sense that there's an evolution in things between the $5,000 espresso machines and the you know less expensive plastic plungers or other things that, that people may be happy with but I hate cleaning the AeroPress. I hate some of the mechanics of it. And so this, to me, just as a design thing, appeals immediately. And I suspect there was a market of people that when sites like Bon Appetit or whoever wrote about it said, oh, okay, this is something, you know, the AeroPress is still going to be out there. There's other alternatives. This is a different idea. And wow, maybe this thing is easier to clean as well. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of great coffee devices out there. And and those of us who are Coffee lovers probably have a pretty large collection of those devices, <laughs> and we are those people as well. We have an air press, we have French presses, we have pour-overs, we have all sorts of different things. This is another device to fit within the coffee collection. We think that it, it does the job of creating a great cup of coffee better than some of those other devices, and differently than others of those devices, um, but still with a great cup. So there was room in the market. We saw um, cleaning was one of the elements that we realized could be significantly different, at least from a French press, a traditional French press. And then the brewing and having a nice clean cup instead of having grounds in your coffee and that kind of thing. And that's essentially what we're offering. Is just that piece of the market where we saw there there isn't anything currently there. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing actually in the evolution of the product design is so with you know for I guess for viewers who can't really have anything in front of them about how it works, um, there's basically an outer cup and an, and an inner plunger, and so by making everything in one device by putting all the coffee grounds in the outer uh, cup and pouring in your hot water and watching this coffee cake form, um, for those of you into cupping and uh, tasting of coffee beans, you actually get to experience cupping, and then you put mm. plunger in, and when you plunge it, then you get this really nice crema, I mean, like you'd see on a really, like a nice espresso. And by having those things in there and keeping it in one device and not going from one vessel to another vessel or passing it through paper or doing things like that, you keep all of the coffee in one place. And so then it was like, a, okay, well, we can put on a lid on it, and you can take it to go if you want, Um in our own lifestyle, most of the people that we drink coffee with, it, there's not much of a to-go nature. It's more of a, uh, we just wanted to keep everything in there so you could get the coffee cake, get the crema, and then sit down and, do, and enjoy it. But we realized that, you know, in the crowdfunding campaign that there's a lot of people who are very much into the to-go nature of it. And so that's actually been an interesting thing that we've learned about because for me that would be, you know, uh, a slightly different take on just how we came up with the idea, but it ends up being something that other people really think is one of the greater things about it. Let's take a break to talk about starting small. 
I wanted to learn how to program better in 1999. I wrote a little web-based tool that would look up ISBNs at online bookstores and show the prices. People started using it, and I added author and title searches and other features. The site is isbn.nu, and it's a fast way to compare book prices. When someone buys a book, I get a small percentage as an affiliate. Fourteen years after I started it, ISBN.nu remains part of the mix of how I make a living, and it all began when I wanted to learn something new. If you'd like to sponsor The New Disruptors, visit sponsor.muleradio.net, and our sponsorship coordinator will get in touch with you. Now, back to the show. This is a perfect transition, too, because coffee, you know, drinking coffee is about being together with people and and uh, community and having informal discussions. And I know that another part of what you have a now a very long history of doing is trying to bring people together collaboratively. And, you know, crowdfunding is bringing your customers together collaboratively to talk about and support your product. But you've you've been in this um, this space you created called Design Box that I know is a co-working space, but you also describe it as a, a collective and a, it's uh, there's an art gallery attached. Can you tell me about what uh what does design box do for you and why did you why did you build such an enterprise uh design box started when was that like 2003 was it was almost the same time as the t-stick actually i think 2001 was one of the or 2002, maybe. Yes. There was there was a lot of a lot of uh, discussion then about co-working. I mean, there were early co-working spaces being built, but they weren't. None of them seemed quite like what you've done with Designbox. Yeah, and what we realized, we had a a, a space um, back in 2001, 2002 that was just just our design consultancy, and our lease was up, and so we we needed to look for the the next place where we were going to be. And we started talking amongst ourselves about the idea of a critical mass of creativity and when you're around more creative people, more creative energy happens and creativity is is easier to tap into. Um, At the same time, we did not want to grow our business into a larger design firm and have have that critical mass of creativity be employee-based. So we started having meetings, inviting people to meetings of, hey, if you wanted to work in a new space with other creative people, what would it be like? What what would entice you? Hmm. And it was through these group discussions that we inevitably crafted Design Box. And Design Box is a, it's a creative collective. It, it has never really, for a very short period of time, it was traditional co-working, kind of in the middle of our history. But really, it's been what we call shared working, which is people dedicated to the space. So they're not coming in. It's not a transient nature. It's people who are leasing space together so that a culture of creativity can happen within the space. Ah. Everybody knows everyone else. And there were also Design Box members who were not renting space, but they came in. We had weekly meetings, and those weekly meetings, we would, we would talk about our, our projects that we were working on. And all of these folks were from a variety of creative professions. So we had architects, product, graphic design, uh, cartoonists, coders, um, software developers, interior design, all sorts of stuff. And we still do have And we still do. So, yeah, we would, we would meet each week, and uh, different people have, bring different projects to the table, and then we would do creative brainstorming, think tank sorts of techniques to try to open up whatever the problem statement was and give some, some feedback or critique or whatever it is that the person bringing the project to the table needs. And in addition to that, come up with, projects that we might want to do as a group that that are more outreach types of projects to bring other artists or or other government people or whoever whoever in the city we wanted to invite could tap into what we were doing. It's so now, fascinating. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, one of the reasons I think when, when we talk about the past, you know, we've seen Design Box transition over time. And that's been a really interesting thing for us to understand about culture is that it grows, right? It grows like a plant or anything else. So we, we were pretty formal at the beginning about how, does, how Design Box would function. And in a way, it's like courtship, you know? I mean, like, 
really calling ahead for the date and making sure the restaurant's ready <laughs> for you. And like, you know, you take all these steps to make sure things are going to go really well tonight, you know. And um, after a while, after um, this is now our uh, third facility mm. that we're in right now. And so we've been, you know, doing this for a while. Over time, we've seen that change. I mean, just like, you know, you might grow a relationship with someone. At the beginning, it was really trying to make sure everything was fair, everything was safe. People weren't going to, like, worry about people stealing their ideas. And we had to, like, allay a lot of fears and really um, focus on fairness and, um, and democracy and that kind of, of an approach because people were walking into it for the first time. But really what, what that facilitated was the creation of, of an inventive culture of people who are used to doing innovative ideas of using other people to help them um, develop those ideas, maybe to collaborate when they have a big, you know, project that requires different skill sets. And over time, as that's developed, then a lot of the rules have sort of fallen away. You don't really need them because now you walk into design box and you immediately feel it. And that's, we didn't see that coming and we really didn't. I mean, it was just, we had all these, you know, principles and structures and all these things. <laughs> it feels pretty silly to get out all the silverware when it's just the family eating. That's a great explanation of that process too, but that's the collectivization thing. I grew up in Eugene, Oregon and everything was a collective or a, a anarcho syndicate or something like that. And so I saw a lot of the, a lot of the paraphernalia of such uh, groups overwhelm the utility of them. There'd be too many rules and there'd be the rule enforcers and so forth. And if you can evolve to the state you have where you don't actually need all the rules because everyone involved is an equal participant who just gets it, then you, you know, not, one thing I think there's been a theme accidentally running through, um, we're up to almost 20 podcasts now. And uh, unintentionally, so many of the folks I talk to are in spaces like the kind you created. Some of them are, um, enormous. Uh, talk to, uh, Lumi. That's, um, the fabric dye makers that are in the brewery in Los Angeles, which is this huge complex of buildings that used to be a brewery. Nobody cares about the buildings. The landlord doesn't care if you like, they dug up the floor and put new plumbing in and you can drill through walls and blow stuff up, whatever you want to do. Uh, or there's even, I haven't talked to these folks yet, but uh, in Seattle, there's a group called Surf Incubator that is a non-equity based product incubation rental space. And it's a, it's co-working, but all they do is they encourage almost graduate school like interaction between all the companies that are there to get them to a point where they can go out on their own. They don't take equity. They just take rent. And, um, you know, even uh, I've talked to so many firms that are involved with community where they get that graduate school feeling. You go back to the crit. You go and have, sit down with people and talk about ideas in a way that typically you're only like allowed to say in business. I and mean, I say allowed, I'm putting air quotes no one can see. Um, we, you know, we were allowed to do it in, in, I was an undergrad art major. You're allowed to do it in grad school where you sit around and part of the point is you have crit and you have office hours and you have this interaction. Then when you're in business, you're supposed to shut up and, and focus on your own work or something. But you guys don't buy into that theory, obviously. And, and it works for you too, it seems. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny that you mentioned the graduate school approach because even our space, all three of the spaces that we've been in, we have intentionally had them be a large open space without walls that separate the businesses from each other. And we do have some... Um, what we call wallies, which are like six foot tall shelves on wheels that we can sort of separate each other just visually a little bit, but or even pin those, up on or yeah, or pin up uh, pin up stuff on, and those were directly inspired from Ali's days uh, at NC State College of Design. So, um, so yes, the the critique and design space of going to design school directly impacted how we work today and what this space even looks like. That's almost like trying to preserve the best parts of one's childhood into adulthood. It's like, what are the best things about grad school and working with fellow artists that you can take into a creative business environment where it's usually discouraged? I, I love that there's that uh, people are taking that lesson. And it seems to, I mean, that seems to be your mood, the, com the community mood, the bringing people in, the collaborative thing. And then also that ties in again to crowdfunding and all the ways in which you're willing to put yourself out there as opposed to being proprietary, closed down behind a wall. You put yourself out there to rise or fall by what people might think of the thing. And you're, you're taking a risk there when you do it. Right. I mean, it's one of the reasons that like the co-working, we tried it for a while. We had one gentleman who was, you know, wanting to run that as a business model to see how, you know, co-working would work within this shared working facility. And um, 
it just wasn't for us. I mean, mm-hmm. um, it was just too anonymous. You have some hotshot show up from whatever city they're from who is like, you know, demanding on coffee or this or that. <laughs> it's that's just not our style. I mean, it's like, oh, you want coffee? Well, here's here's the coffee maker and make it yourself. It's so hard. Every space has a culture. And I think some co-working, there's, there's a bunch of co-working in Seattle and they have fostered over time. There's enough permanent people, enough regulars, and enough people coming through on a regular basis that it doesn't feel transient. And Keith um, Knight, the cartoonist in Los Angeles, he described to me when I talked to him about a crowdfunding campaign he did uh, almost a couple of years ago now, that he's in a co-working space where it's just, it's exactly as you describe yours. It's evolved into that. So it has a feeling of community. And then there's others I hear where it's a desk and people come and go and it's not, it's really a rental desk, not a space that you feel you're collaborative in. Right. Now, there is, you know, um, a, a few blocks away from us, Hub Raleigh opened up, and that's part of a, um, I guess, an international group that's doing these co-working spaces. And we were, frankly, relieved because people would no longer come to us for co-working, but we felt like that community was being served. Yeah, and there's a need for it. I mean, we, you know, you go to any Starbucks, and you can understand why co-working is, is, a, is a wonderful idea. And there's, there's some crossover between the amount of... Uh, the cost and space that's happening there. Um, I want to ask you about one final project, which I think we should come back to when you're further along with and have a full podcast about down the road is the life shoes, the LYF shoes that you're in process with. And I know there's aspects you're not talking about as publicly, and there's some things that are, and I feel like this ties into so many of the themes we've talked about in the podcast so far, the way you like to work, what you want to do, your goals for sort of the larger part of life outside of your business. And then also, you're tying into all of these aspects of modern manufacture that we talk about throughout the podcast, so all these things about prototyping and uh, one-of-a-kind design and um, direct relationship with the consumer, even though this is the, your idea is to make this a big um, distributed business. Can you give me the 10,000-foot view of what these life shoes are going to be? Yeah, um, you know, that's right now occupying a lot of my time, um, both um, <laughs> on, like, you know, cutting patterns in fabrics as well as kind of looking at, you know, 50,000 feet about how is this thing really going to work. Mm-hmm. But it is a logical extension. I mean, just as you might say, you know, crowdfunding is a logical extension of design entrepreneurship. I think the next step after that is how are you going to make it, right? I mean, you came up with this great idea. The, the community got behind you. They funded it. They're a part of it. I mean, all these other things that we've been trying to do. But then, you know, you got also have to have responsible manufacturing and I won't go so far as to say that this is a model of crowd manufacturing but it is approaching that as as an ideal and so what we're looking at is um, how to completely rethink the way things are made and um, so I spend a lot of my time in factories so I'm I'm going you know to Asia three or four times a year I'm in like two or three dozen factories each time I spend a lot of time looking at how things are made I've designed footwear for a while. I think it's the ugliest industry that I've seen. And one of the reasons that North Carolina saw it leave first out of, you know, the, the, the beginning of the wave of manufacturing leave North Carolina is because it's highly toxic. It involves a whole lot of labor and there's a lot of danger to it. There's a lot of heat. There's a lot of waste. And we're and then, you know, of course, we're landfilling all of the shoes that we wear. And right now in the United States, 96% of the shoes that we buy are from overseas. And at the same time, you go to the factories in Asia, and right now, I think 70-something percent is all coming from China. And these people are, like, you know, having a really tough time doing it. They, um, it's, it's, I mean... And this is even in the factories. Let's say that, and there's all these fair labor standards going on. You're not talking about the horrible subcontractor, subcontract. You're talking about the best of the factories out there that are paying people well by standards there, that have all the safety things in place those are still awful too, aren't they? Well, I think, you know... I mean, not to put you on the spot. I know you work with manufacturers too, but I mean, it's not... These are. This is like the Foxconn debate with Apple. None of these jobs, even when people really want them and they're the best jobs they can have, they're still really hard. They're still really dangerous. I think, yeah, and I think the, the biggest reason they are is because we have antiquated ways of making things. So for right now, I mean, right. the only way to really glue or the way people are attaching leather and... EVA foam and rubber and all kinds of other stuff is to use an adhesive, basically universal adhesive that will work on everything. So that's pretty much toluene. And toluene is highly carcinogenic. And when you have mostly women in factories working on shoe production lines, 
you're causing unbelievable amounts of birth defects. This is well documented, the, the carcinogenic value of, of toluene, and that's what most of us are walking around in all day. And so until you really remake that, you're, you're, you're playing with fire, right? Or you're playing with poison anyway. Mm-hmm. So, well, there's a, whole, there's a whole bunch of factors that go in there. I know that you've, docu- you've documented in the, some of your background on this is that there's, there's all the factors, you know, the lack of environmental compliance, the lack of labor oversight, the relatively but increasingly less uh, relative low cost of labor, um, the, the work hour b- rules, like so many things contribute to making all these antiquated processes still either like palatable and affordable with the pricing structure and import structure that we have now, some of that's breaking down too, and you're taking advantage of it, but other parts are new economies and new technologies that you can make use of that the traditional industry hasn't gone over to yet because it's not necessarily economic for them to do at this moment. Right. I mean, I think the only way to really get into, um, to rethink the, the way we make things is, is that you have to then rethink its connections to the other parts of the, of the whole design process, and that means connecting to the way we sell things. And if you look back at the cobbler, it was a salesman and a manufacturer tied together. And through really through the Industrial Revolution, we split that up. We said, okay, we'll send sales over here to the mall or wherever we're going to do that, and we're going to send manufacturing to wherever the cheapest labor is, and as a result, we have, you know, made the most efficient model of each in a way. And the result is probably the worst footwear we've had in this country in a long time. So you know, right now, to get widths or get anything, when I talk to anyone asking about the quality of their shoes, most people are unhappy. And if anything, they're buying custom orthotics or whatever else. It's really just a sign that our footwear has really deteriorated quite a bit in the goal of achieving maximum efficiency in sales and manufacturing. So I think there's another way to do it, and that's what we're looking at, is if, you, if we're going to remake manufacturing, we also have to remake retail. That's very interesting, because every, in every stage of this, you've got, you want to make something local, you want to make something custom, you want to make something personal, and you want to have a good connection with the people who are, who are buying and selling it. Right. So if our retail centers become manufacturing centers, too, if we, if we basically just have the digital cobbler, and that's, that's the, really the, the icon of, of our brand, then all of a sudden that opens up a completely different thing, right? So if you had the cobbler of old time, except he has, let's say, just a magic black box, he or she has a magic black box, you can really get some pretty custom stuff. You can have local artisans with their prints involved on your shoe. You can use, you know, locally sourced materials. You can basically do a slow shoe movement. <laughs> Wait, and, you know where this is already happening, of course, is um, in dentistry. That's what Invisalign is. Invisalign not to advertise a product. They're not a sponsor of this show. <laughs> but uh, right now I'm deciding between Invisalign and braces and conventional braces, which have improved a lot too, partly because of competition, I think, about in terms of cost and um, efficiency. But you go into a dentist's office now. A dentist used to have to refer you to someone else. A dentist can now work with a 3D. It's out of house, but they do this, the testing and measurements and all that, and they get 3D printed uh, custom um you know, inserts that you put in your mouth and you wear and you change them over time as you get closer and closer to the ideal tooth connection. It's like that puts a tool in the hands of dentists. Uh, or, you know, I was in my dentist's office and they print new teeth now. They print, uh, they have 3D printers and they print a tooth that they can use to put in your mouth. And you're like, this seems like um, crazy future land and yet we're, <laughs> we're living it. Let's talk more about life when it's further along. I want to hint Hint listeners now, because I like talking about things when they become, both when they're incipient and when they become fully realized. And I think we, um, we've, we've teased people enough. <laughs> and we'll come back and talk more about this, um, when it's further down the road, because I think, uh, I think there's so many elements that are gonna, that are gonna be part of this ongoing discussion. Uh, even though for this project, you're raising substantial financing. That's the goal right now is to raise financing to get into a higher levels of production and, and distribution. Well, um, we really enjoyed our crowdfunding experience with the impress and so it seems like there might be some way to use crowdfunding to help us get to the next level oh that's great as a component that's great well i have one idea for you by the way in parting i'll say the one thing you could work on next please in your spare time is is you don't have to reinvent the baby bottle because i like the dr brown bottle like both my kids had acid reflex we love the dr brown's bottle the dr brown's bottles are impossible to clean i will tell you when you hang out with other parents <laughs> When you have babies, the discussion you have most is, how do you clean a Dr. Brown's bottle? So there's your design challenge. I hope you'll work either on a new kind of bottle or a cleaning kit for the existing one. But 
there's a market dying for people to fill it in. Duly noted. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show and talking about both your working method and your products. It's been really fun to hear how you work. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, great, great to reconnect with you. Yeah, great pleasure. And I'll have the show notes. will have uh, everything we talk about will be somewhere in the show notes. And thanks for listening. Oh, fantastic. Thanks. thanks. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Music